the one thing I needed to learn, which has stayed true from the beginning, was uh, no matter what, what comes first is is make sure that that you really love this piece, that mm-hmm. you want to live with mm-hmm. it, that it has a livability that that goes with your life, and that if it's not worth anything to anybody else, it's still worth something to you. Absolutely. And welcome back to Curious Objects, brought to you by the magazine Antiques. I'm Ben Miller. If you're a longtime listener, you've heard me talk with dealers and curators, scholars and auctioneers, craftsmen and connoisseurs. But one group we haven't spent much time with is the people who make this whole industry work, collectors. These are the people who buy from dealers and from auctions, who donate to museums, who read books and articles, some of them even listen to podcasts. So, for today's episode, I was thrilled to be joined by Noah Wunsch. Noah and his brother Eric together run the Decorative Arts Foundation established by their grandfather, legendary collector Eric Martin Wunsch. Noah also has a job at Sotheby's, but aside from all that, he is an enthusiast for art, decorative arts, and what people nowadays like to call design. I sat down with Noah in his Manhattan apartment, which used to be a storeroom for the family collection. It's filled with all manner of curious objects, from ancient to modern and everything in between. If you're like me and are curious about what makes collectors tick, and how they think about whether and what to buy, I think you'll enjoy this episode. And if you'd like to see pictures of all these objects, go to the magazineantiques.com slash podcast, or visit my Instagram at Objective Interest. Before we jump in, here's a quick word from our sponsor. Have you ever wondered who was the master of the embroidered foliage, or wanted to know what it was like to be at Andy Warhol's factory? Freeman's, America's oldest auction house, tells the stories of these and other curious objects. Discover Pennsylvania's craft legacy, go behind the scenes at auctions and exhibitions, and uncover your passion for collecting. Visit freemansauction.com to sign up for their newsletter and get these stories and more delivered straight to your inbox. Um, okay, I want to start off by saying thank you, Noah Wunsch, very much for being on the podcast. It's my pleasure. And I want to know a little bit about the history of this foundation, um, of which you are a third generation member, if yes. I'm counting right. Yes. So so what is the Wunsch Foundation and, and how did it get its start? Uh, so the Wunsch Americana Foundation is a nonprofit that's focused on making sure that early American decorative arts and Americana as a field continues to progress. Um, And that can mean any number of things. Uh, And we hope that it does, of course. Uh, I think the way that my brother and I um, are certainly inspired is by connecting a newer, younger generation to the field as well. Um, Finding narrative through lines, finding experiences that can help educate them um, and help them understand that anything dated anything that was an antique or considered to be at one point was the height of contemporary everything has its period of modernism uh and finding narratively the through lines particularly through contemporary design that connects those dots and how has the mission of the foundation changed over time or or has it been very consistent you know it's a it's a funny thing i didn't get to talk too much about it with my grandfather when he was alive, uh, which is unfortunate. And he, he um, got the ball rolling. He started, yes. Uh, Eric Martin Wunsch, um, for which we give an annual award in his honor, um, was the one who started it. And he was he was an academic collector. Uh, and I mean that. How, how long ago was that? 
uh, he started collecting. I believe he started the foundation. This is this is the lore of the foundation uh-huh. um, that he started the foundation. Actually, even before he started acquiring pieces, it was as if he oh. had the foresight that that this was coming. This was a progression in his life. Um, and then, then obviously, so he wasn't asking. born a collector. He he became a collector. That's an interesting question. I I think he must have been born a collector, just with the fastidiousness he approached um, the field with. He was certainly. I, I, I'm fortunate, and I hope I got some of his genes. He was brilliant. Um, he, he went to MIT. He was a mechanical engineer, um, just like my great grandfather Joseph Wunsch. Um, he was a brilliant man, and he dedicated himself to the field in that his approach was making sure he knew everything about mm. it, uh, every single nook and cranny. I think that's 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 what I've gained uh, the most understanding about from talking to people in the field who knew him so much that he could definitely be difficult, but his difficulty usually derived from his knowledge. Um, there's one story about how he was kind of uh, lusting after this piece for years. He was he was trying to get uh, a collector to, to pass it over to him, whether by a trade or acquisition. Um, and then on the final day, he was it, it was ready. the The trade, the the collection was about to happen. And my grandfather, before saying, "Okay, let's move forward," said, "I want to inspect the piece again." And he inspected it, and he found something with it that he he didn't realize or recognize before. In those years of dedication, he was able to wipe away in one fell swoop because he realized that it wasn't the perfect example that he was looking for. And I, that's something I can't relate to. If I, if I'm tracking something yeah. for years and I find on the last day there's discrepancy, I'll say, nah, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll deal with so that later. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I, I really respect that. Mm-hmm. I think that again, it, it speaks to his dedication. It's the and spirit his of passion. perfectionism. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, so today this is the, the foundation has pieces that are, uh, on exhibit at museums around the country. Yep. Absolutely. Um, what does the, what does the medium to long-term future of the foundation look like? What do you want it to be doing in 10 or 20 years from now? I think we want to continue on the path we're going right now. Eric and I have uh, been working on um, a commission series with contemporary designers where we work with them uh, and we, we discuss our collection with them. And usually in a collaborative process, we decide on one piece for them to work with in the foundation. And we ask them to create what is not not a reinterpretation, but probably something that's inspired by the piece. Um, and we found that, again, narratively, that's a really nice through line and a nice way of telling a story of, of how these pieces mm. were contemporary yeah. and why yeah. they're important. A great example, again, of, of working with an institution was with the Wadsworth Athenaeum, where Eric and I put together uh, with Brandy Culp a, a fantastic panel um, of people in contemporary design and decorative arts talking about the through lines between the two. Uh, and this was also to honor alone of a piece uh, that we had commissioned by David Wiseman, this beautiful mirror that goes with a Japanese desk, a knee hole that we have as well. Uh, right. um, and the Wadsworth has those two pieces on view right now in a room. And, and it's beautiful. Hmm. They're, they're amazing together and they complement each other so well. Uh, we've worked with some really brilliant contemporary designers to create what we hope will be masterpieces and, and continue to thrive as long as, as the pieces in our collections have. We want to continue to work with institutions and make sure that we loan those, though, and get them on view. 
Um, we did a great event with the Metropolitan Museum of Art a few years back. I've heard of them. Uh, <laughs> small institution. No, they're fantastic. Um, and, and we do love collaborating with them, too. We brought a small, not actually a small group. We, we brought about 200 people, mostly under the age of 30, to the Americana Wing um, to hear Elise England speak about pieces in the wing. And, and of course, focus on the John Brown chair, which is kind of the uh, the greatest piece in our collection, I would say. Um can, was, can you give me a 30 second uh, overview absolutely. of this chair? So the, the John Brown chair uh, is it's a corner chair and it's kind of the perfect representation of um, what a corner chair should be like in form. And, and I think one of the, the greatest things that I learned from Elise um, actually on that little tour was that the corner chair was essentially the lazy boy of its time. And I love that. <laughs> that, it, that ergonomically, and you can see this in its form, that it's really a chair that you... You, you don't, I can't say you sink into because it, it is still a wooden chair, but you can see in the curves of it how uh, the rectilinear quality of it, it's something that you certainly ease into after dinner. It's kind of, you know, after you have a big meal, you, you just kind of rest into the corner chair. Mm -hmm. And I it's love not that. A, a, one of the side chairs that forces you to no. have good posture. No, but it was, it was amazing how that one little idea completely can change your perspective on a piece of furniture. The idea of uh, an early American piece as a quote-unquote lazy boy. I love that. Um, yeah, well, and it's it's relatable. Yes, exactly. And I don't think it diminishes the, the artisan craftsmanship of it because, God, the curves on that piece, mm. are, they're so mm. beautiful. But suddenly when you see it that way, it shifts because you can see someone just easing into it. It does suddenly take on... A, a pose of comfort that that isn't like a corner chair not a corner chair pardon me uh, a side table mm -hmm. chair or queen anne mm -hmm. um it isn't so upright and and sturdy and, and formal yeah. it's it's fun yeah so i'm you know people collect for a lot of different reasons and sometimes one person may collect for many different reasons at the same time but the way that you describe settling into a chair sinking into it it's a very personal kind of approach to the object it makes you think of all the people who did settle into that chair in that yeah. way over over time when it was first made and and since then would you say you connect to objects in that way on sort of a personal use level um that's a great question on a personal use level i think that my collecting habits have certainly been a little a bit more contemporary yeah. so i don't know that they've had the opportunity to have as much historic wear to them right i certainly and we'll get to that in a minute because yeah. i want to talk about some of the things that you have collected <laughs> um I, I think what i have uh gained especially from learning from my grandfather's uh way of collecting though is doing the background research making sure that anything that i, I do acquire from a third party has a certificate of authenticity or has the means to get that authentication from an estate um but no, I think more the thing that draws me and my collecting habits these days is the story of the designer itself, mm. um, themselves, pardon me, um, the story of the piece, the thought that went behind it. Um, and I, I think as we, we briefly mentioned before recording, I like color. Yeah, I like splashy right. color. I right. like big bombastic colors. I have a little bit of what I like to call ugly design taste <laughs> um, that I, I enjoy. It, it makes living with it a lot more fun, in my opinion. Yeah. So it is, you are driven aesthetically, not just by the stories around pieces. Um, you raise an interesting point when you mention um, certificates of authenticity. Mm -hmm. I talk on this show with a lot of dealers and a lot of scholars and specialists and that sort of thing. 
um, these are the people writing those certificates. Yeah. But as someone, as a collector, as someone who's buying across a wide range of different fields, because you don't just own corner chairs, for example. Yeah. Um, what are, what are the uh, sources of or or the sort of um, hallmarks of reliability that uh, that you depend on when you're buying? It's a great question. I, I think a I you know the major auction houses. I do feel pretty strongly that I can trust. Um, if I go with a gallery, and actually the, the table we're sitting at right now, which is Shira Kuramata's Kyoto table, um, I got from a gallery. And I hadn't dealt with the gallery in the past. Um, luckily, the gallerist was wonderful to work with. He was uh, great, and he let me be the obnoxious person that I am and try to negotiate him down as much as possible. Um, but the main thing that was important to me was that this was an authentic Kuramata piece. Yeah. Um, and he said that he had been in touch with the Memphis estate um, and that they had uh, affirmed that this is the real deal. And I said, well, do you have a certificate? And he said, no, but I can put you in touch with the estate and make sure that they'll provide you one. And if you look under the table, there is, in fact, a certificate granted from Memphis saying that this is the real deal. Um, so that was important to me because yeah. I, I love yeah. this piece yeah. and I love Coromata's work. And I didn't I didn't want to get a re-edition. I wanted to make sure that this was made in his lifetime. That was that was important to me. It, why why I mean, was that? And this is a tangent, but why was that important to you? Well, I think... I think if you are acquiring a piece too, that's um, of value to you, uh, whether that is monetary value or sentimental value. Um, in this, this I'm I don't have uh, rose tinted glasses on. I'm not I'm not of the mindset that Shirokuramata, you know, worked with the cement and glass of this mm-hmm, piece with mm-hmm. his hands, and I'm sure it was mass produced in that way. But but knowing that maybe. Maybe he touched something on right, his table. Right. Maybe he had some oversight um, to confirm that the glass was laid out just the way he wanted it to, that it did replicate his vision of minimalism and bombast at the same time. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, that's a concept we run across in the world of antique silver all the time. Yeah. Because, of course, there were um, there are very collectible makers. Mm-hmm. Everyone seeks these makers, whether it's um, you know Hester Bateman in England or whether it's Paul Revere in America. Yep. Or, um, and I think some people are under the illusion that Paul, a Paul Revere tablespoon <laughs> was made by Paul Revere yeah. standing at his anvil Absolutely. with his hammer and pounding it out. Yeah. And uh, uh, sometimes I have to disillusion people, and it's very disappointing to, to learn right that no, and in fact, it was a business. Yeah. Um, and you know, some silversmiths were more likely to have done that work Absolutely. with their own hands than others. Um, but that doesn't mean that Paul Revere's silver is any less interesting no. and valuable. Yeah, um, it did pass through his business, and it is in a sense his. Yeah, and so you are in a sense connected to him. Absolutely. Again, I think though what you're touching on is probably also why we do believe as a family and I think as a field that Americana is so important too, which is that that those were those are not mass produced. Those were touched yeah. by the hands yeah. of the craftsman. Right. Right. Um a John Townsend table is a John Townsend right. table. Or God or um, God. Exactly. And again that the thing that always I think that 
is is obvious to us as a field because we know it, but usually blows people's minds when you really are, are able to articulate it to them, is that these were handmade pieces. You look at the perfection of a great Bombay and you see the, the curves on it. And, and if you don't really understand that that's by hand, it doesn't seem like it's magic. Yeah. Um, it can feel like something that a machine just kind of plugged out. Right. But when you get that this was made by a human being and those curves and the, the, sh the drawers are, are perfectly um, placed into them, um, it takes on a whole new quality. I think there's there's a little bit of magic there. Yeah. Well, we've been inured to that, right? Because now those curves, we see those kinds of curves in all kinds of mass-produced furniture. Yeah. Because it used to be the only way to get that curve was to make it by hand, and people, and and that's why these objects were valuable when they were produced. Right? Exactly. Not because they were old. Yeah. They were new, as you said at the at the start of our conversation. Yeah. Um, I I just had this experience today. I was looking at an auction catalog, and I saw a set of four um, silver candlesticks, and uh, it's a mid 18th century form, but they were actually produced by Crichton mm -hmm. in the early 20th century. And I, I paused for a minute when I saw this, and I thought, you know, when those were first produced and sold by Crichton, they were sold to someone who, for whom it would have been a real novelty to see a, a, um, a mass-produced object. Absolutely. Uh, and Crichton had very skilled craftsmen, of course, but it was a different kind of production yeah. and a different scale. But for the first time, perhaps a young family might have been able to buy a set of candlesticks of that form. Yeah. And, okay, they're not as valuable as the 18th century ones, but they look just as nice yeah. or close to it. And, uh, and prior to that, prior to Crichton's Enterprise, you just couldn't have had candlesticks that looked like that. No. There, there are these moments where, where again, they're, whether it's part of the Industrial Revolution or whether it's um, a derivative of Moore's Law where production kind of takes on a new level and it evolves, seeing an example of that, um, whether we're starting to see it with artificial intelligence art right now um, as an right. example, or whether it's uh, an original Ford, which, you know, was kind of the, the height example of a car that was affordable and beautifully produced, or whether it's Prouvé, who was originally that the whole mentality behind Prouvé's work was affordable work that was beautiful and good design for everyone. Yeah. Um, but now, of course, it's this rare, beautiful object. Right. And what it represents in its simplicity is, is exceptionalism. Um, so uh, it definitely is fascinating to think about how manufacturing has evolved in the height of the examples. Mm -hmm. 3D printing will be pretty interesting to see. Right how that starts shaping and if we see real artisans and, and artists from that there, there are great examples already I mean Joris Larman has been doing really interesting work with 3D printing too um, but delineating how you define who is who is the height exceptional uh, representation of this field when it is mass and scale it's pretty interesting so I, that's not an area I'm familiar with but in a 3D printing artist is that someone who creates a design in a CAD program and then sends it to you and you print it out? And Precisely, yeah. I, I think that's that that's definitely an oversimplification of um, of a, a really exceptional uh, 3D designer, I'd say. Um, but at its base level, absolutely, uh -huh. yeah. There are a number of programs where you can design these works and you can choose the coloring and formatting, um, and then yeah, you can produce it. 
so let's step back because I want to know a little bit about the transition that you've gone through. Well, I don't know if transition is the right word for it, but um, you grew up in a family with a keen interest in old American decorative arts. Mm -hmm. You now collect other things. You collect modern and contemporary works. Yeah. What is it that you needed to learn as you moved into the world of modern and contemporary I think more than anything, the one thing I needed to learn, which has stayed true from the beginning, was uh, something my father taught me, really, and probably my mom, too, is <laughs> uh, their example, I guess, of this, um, which is no matter what you're buying, make sure you like it. Uh, we had Easier said than done. 100%. We had what I would call probably the ugliest painting I've ever seen in my entire life growing up in our apartment uh, in New York City when I was a little kid. And the story behind it is that, uh, you know, my, my mom and dad were keyed in that this was an up and coming artist, that he was really, he was a great investment. Um, oh and boy. of course the artist yeah. didn't go anywhere and we were stuck with this horrible memory of a bad investment on our wall <laughs> that we were too stubborn to take down. Uh, so living with that God awful piece, uh, <laughs> sorry, mom and dad, um, was a great example of, of no matter what, what comes first is, is make sure that, that you really love this piece, that mm-hmm. you want to live with mm-hmm. it, that it has a livability that, that goes with your life. And that if it's not worth anything to anybody else, it's still worth something to you. Absolutely. And I think that while, well, I certainly live with modern and contemporary. I, I live with uh, early American. I, I have two 19th century glass portraits on my wall, which are right below some Geneve Figgis paintings. And Geneve Figgis is a contemporary artist that I love. Um, I have some outsider art. I've got a Thornton dial right when you walked in. Um, and a lot of that, I mean, I, I didn't know anything about Thornton dial um, until I saw that work. Um, and then I was fortunate to, to have some people give me some books and say if you're interested in this field you should really read up on folk art outsider art and art brute and before i acquired any thornton dial i made sure that i read up and i understood the field better um so that i wasn't just only reacting on instinct so that i understood where this was coming from the the field at large um so i i try to do that if something is interesting to me visually that's usually a step one Mm -hmm. step two is then learning um, yeah. And then step three, based on the learning, is potentially acquiring or, or learning more. Right, right. What do you think about, if you read old books on collecting, old guides to collecting mm-hmm. across different fields of antiques, what you'll often see uh, by way of advice is people saying, well, the first thing you should do is decide what your area is. Uh-huh. You should decide, you know, do you want antique maps of Italy Yeah, from the... 17th century or you know do you want 19th century uh, austrian watercolors yeah or do you and, <laughs> um and and so the idea is or or you know do you want american coins yeah. whatever the the area is the idea is define your area and then try to get the best things that you can but you're setting a larger stage for yourself right? i hope so I I think that we're, I I can't speak at large because I think certain collectors collect certain ways with different categories, learning about different fields, um, speaks to my interests. It speaks to how I want to live. I'm, God, I would love to have the the greatest representation of Austrian watercolors, Uh, but I I don't see why I can't have that um, and dip my toes in contemporary art as well. And I think it's reflective of how people live today. 
Um, and I think it should be encouraged. I think it's important also for for antiques, for early American as well, um, to show the diversity and the ability to live in a modern contemporary setting with these pieces too. Because so often, to your point, you see period settings or you see these unbelievably ornate, beautiful rooms, but they can feel dated. Yeah. They can They sometimes don't feel contemporary. Yeah. And I don't know that it's the best example to younger people that, that this is still a vibrant field. Right, and it feels like you have to consign yourself to living in a museum. Precisely. So um, tell me about this, because um, different people, as we've touched on, collect in different ways, but they also enjoy their collections in different ways. Um, some people try to create the most consistent and period-appropriate and wonderfully beautiful rooms mm -hmm. that they can. And then they throw a party and they invite everybody over to <laughs> admire it and uh, and enjoy the setting together. Yeah. And that's that can be a wonderfully exciting thing to do. Um, other people collect a, a few things and put them in a china hutch and take them out once a year to look at them. Mm -hmm. um, how do you enjoy the things that, that you've collected? Do you enjoy them by yourself or socially or do you enjoy them academically? Or? I think a mix and match. I think... Um right or wrong uh just because my brother and i have become um we've gone deeper in the design field and learned more about it what's been really interesting to me is that my friends ask me for recommendations now um and it, it comes from a place that uh, of being uninformed i think in some cases that they want to learn about it but they don't know the access points yet they don't know where to begin collecting to um so i would say if i were to say that my collecting habits are social, it would be in hopefully trying to open up different fields for, for friends and colleagues and younger people as well. Um, I certainly like having people over, but I don't I don't do the kind of parade thing where I go, oh, and if you look at this piece right here, it's you know, it's a wonderful photograph in a room. I, mm -hmm. I if people ask me questions about certain pieces, I'll definitely tell them. Um, but I like I like living with these pieces. I think that was the example again that uh, our grandfather set for Eric and I too, which is he lived with all of his pieces. He sat in the John Brown chair every mm. single Thanksgiving. Mm. He wasn't he wasn't precious about his items. Yeah. Um, he recognized the utilitarian quality of them as well. Right. Um, you know, again, going back to the table, we're, we're sitting at this right now. We we're having drinks on this right. table right now. I just dropped your coaster on the and floor. That's there. totally fine. You're, you, we picked it up and you know scuffed it off. It's no big deal. Yeah. Um, I think. You should derive pleasure from the things you live with, but you shouldn't. You shouldn't be tiptoeing around it. This is this is your life. This is your home. Um, yeah, I like sitting in in these chairs and, and at this table. Do your tastes differ from that of the rest of your family? Yeah, I'd say so. Uh, <laughs> my brother and I are, are constantly battling over who uh, who has the better taste. Eric has the better taste. There's no question. He has. <laughs> you just got, concede that, right? Yeah, I conceded. I've conceded it. I think from an early age he has a really he's gotten his thetes eye um and he always has uh he has a very refined taste and he understands how things go together beautifully i mean like he he can typical older brother typical older brother terrible um he can whether he recognizes or not it's almost like a merchandiser's approach where things that he collects he's able to put them together in a way that it almost looks like it's editorialized um, I'm a little more mishmash, uh, a little more uh, willy-nilly. Um, again, going back to what I said before, I, I like big colors. 
Um, and sometimes people disagree. They'll they'll think that it's ugly or it's weird or. But I don't really. You mind. just proudly called it ugly a minute ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, to some people, not to me. To me, I I love it. Um, I like living with color. It's fun for me. Um, it certainly. Again, and I think that adds to the quality too of not being scared to to sit and and enjoy these things too. I think if everything was white and original Florence Knoll, who I love by the way, uh, but if it was all white, I I would probably have a I would probably be tiptoeing around my apartment. Yeah, the right. fact that everything is colorful, I can be a little more dangerous with it, which is fun. Noah was kind enough to take me on a tour of his collection, which is to say, his apartment. We'll jump into that momentarily, but first, let's hear from our sponsor. Would you like to learn how much the most expensive American looking glass ever sold at auction went for, or to find out if your collection is appropriate for sale? Freeman's, America's oldest auction house, has the answers. Discover how Thomas Aiken's Gross Clinic stayed in Philadelphia. Delve into the work of Wayne Tebow, the great draftsman, and much more on their website, freemansauction.com. From modern masters to French furniture, Freeman's takes you behind the scenes at auctions and exhibitions, delivering the latest in art market news, events, and stories. Subscribe to their bi-weekly magazine and get it sent straight to your inbox. Visit Freeman's at freemansauction.com to learn more. I always like to take just a minute to say thank you for listening to Curious Objects. I especially want to thank those of you who have written to me with your feedback, which you can do over email at podcast at themagazineantiques.com. I love hearing from you, and I also love reading the reviews you leave on iTunes. Every rating and review helps spread the word, and it's kind of you to take a minute to do that. So thank you very much. And now let's get back to Noah Wunsch. Um, well, it's your apartment. Um, where do you want to start? Um, where should we well, start, Indy? We should start with Indiana Jones. There we go. Well, I've collected a dog. Ah, Indiana Jones. He's a little bit of a mutt. Looking around, it was hard to say which pieces were functional and which were decorative. In fact, plenty of Noah's objects are both at the same time. We stopped to look at a small, decorated copper square. Over here we've got an ancient, seeming belt clip. Uh, When I moved into this apartment, and this is, yeah, this is from... 60 BC, which is wow. always fun. It's a Visigothic bust, uh, buckle, pardon me. So when they took a break from sacking Rome, they, yeah, they just they decided to. Buckles. This apartment kind of used to be a storage facility in many ways for my grandpa, just for all the weird random things he collected. So every now and then I'll just kind of open a closet and feel around and find a Visigothic belt buckle. That's amazing. Uh, but when I first moved in, um, he had ancient glass all over the apartment. I mean, oh, like really? strewn about the floor, which was great. I mean, works from 500 BC. Wow. Um, which they should not have been. So part of the fun part of moving in here too was starting to organize his collection a little bit too and make sure that they sure. weren't on the floor, but learning as the process went along too. It's, it's like walking through the storeroom of a museum. Yeah. The first piece that had caught my eye when I first walked into Noah's apartment was a floor lamp with a beautiful glass shade in a hatched azure pattern. It's on a tall patinated stand with three cabriole legs and a just-so Art Nouveau look. So this is a Tiffany studio lamp. Um, And this is probably one of my favorite pieces, uh, period, in the world ever. Uh, This is my grandma's. Mm. um, And she loved it. She, She brought it kind of 
she she really only lived in two places, but she made sure that this was at her her couch side always. This was kind of her reading lamp, um, and it's got this beautiful uh, little spider detail right. on the lampshade. That's you don't you, really notice it from exactly. across the room. If I step back a few feet, yeah, I barely see it. I think it was year. I, I, it took me years to notice it, and I remember the yeah. day I did. My mind just kind of exploded because it was just this little hidden secret. I think, in fact, I had the reaction that uh, I was probably supposed to have, which is I thought there was a gigantic spider underneath yeah, right. the shade. It's a little um, creepy. Yeah, but there's something so playful about it that I think also spoke to kind of who my grandma was. Mm. Uh, so it's it's a special piece for me. And I love it. Do you think she bought it because she felt it reflected who she was? I think she liked Tiffany. But I think she had, a, good she had a sense of humor. So I, I definitely think there was there was an aspect of that spider, I think, that she knew. It's a whimsical piece, fun. not just the spider. Right? Yeah. The, the stand is... Uh, the legs. Yeah, there's a sort of a Dr. Seuss quality to it. Absolutely. It kind of jumps off the ground like a spider. I love it. Yeah. Um, over here, I was trying to do some more research on this sword. I right. have to tell you, this is... This is a mystery to all of us. We don't okay. know the background or I anything. I like mysteries. But the wonderful thing about this sword, I remember growing up, uh, my brother and I would go to visit our grandparents, uh, and our grandpa would hand us, I kid you not, this sword and another sword to give me and my brother the opportunity to have a literal sword fight. Okay, and for the sake of listeners, I mean, this is a This is a sword. sword. Yeah, it's from 1790. Uh it doesn't have the cork tip on it that it had when my brother and I okay. were fighting. But again, just to keep in mind, it was just a cork on the tip of the blade. Yeah. This could have done serious yeah. damage. Uh, <laughs> wow. But uh, No, shockingly, no. I think it was probably too heavy for my tiny little All arms right. to swing around. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, this is this is just a, a piece I I love. mean, that was a literal fantasy of mine when I was that age. I, 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 I hate to rub my, this my, in. I got to live your fantasy and they had actual I sword know. fights. No one ever gave me a sword. Well, that was probably for the best. Probably, yeah. And then these glass-blown canes, which are underneath it. Next, we looked at a pair of long glass tubes decorated with colorful spirals and with a bulb at one end. Um, I don't know who the maker is on these, um, but again, these were ones that I, I would always see growing up and... Yeah. Um, and I always thought they were priceless and I don't know, there's there's a level of fantasy to them that I think probably speaks to also why I collect such weird things mm. too mm -hmm. um, that there's a little bit of magic in things. Well it's nice to have a personal nostalgia yeah. associated with this it. This one too. over here too it, it just looks and feels a bit like a staff Yeah sure, I could see I could see Gandalf using that. Yeah, you're here We're not dainty with our things, enjoy Fabulous. Yeah that's lovely. No. Here, you've just finished telling me about how you don't invite people over and lecture. I know. But, but I, that's, <laughs> that's, you asked. That's okay. what I came here for. So, <laughs> um, These two paintings, which are these uh, glass portraits yeah. from the 19th century. We had a look at two small images hanging on Noah's wall, both reverse paintings on glass, which is an old technique where paint is applied to the back of a plate of glass, then viewed from the front. The effect is saturated colors with high contrast, and in this case, portraits of a very distinguished-looking man and woman. Honestly, probably worthless. I mean, I, I bought them. The, I think these might have actually been my first acquisition at auction. I think I was probably 23 or something, and I think, honestly, the estimate was 300 to $500 for uh -huh. a pair of them. Uh, and I, the auctioneer was wonderful to humor me in that he took my telephone bid for a $300 right. to $500 piece. In my mind, I, I just remember... Uh, 
the the bid probably raised to three hundred and fifty dollars. On the other end of the line, I just heard. So, do you want to bid four hundred? And I was like, oh, I don't know. It's it's tough. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, okay, bid. And we won it. And I just remember like celebrating to myself and the auctioneer being like, okay, bye. I have to go now. They got to sell something worth real money. Yeah, real money. Here's the fellow in the photo. That's my grandfather. Uh, so that was him on his 75th birthday wearing an ascot. The man can pull an ascot off. I, wow, it I looks very it. natural. <laughs> uh, and then this little medicine cabinet. I like actually what's inside of it more than the medicine cabinet itself. Oh, what's inside it? Uh, just a bunch of playing cards. And we used to... The company that my family started way back when called Silent Hoist, which was, again, an industrial engineer company, uh, created these cards every holiday for people who worked at the company. Uh, Is it worth less when it's not in its original packaging? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I, <laughs> I'm being a bad collector right now. Oh, no. Um, but I love the cards. There we are. I'm a big fan of games, so... Um, but these are just so smooth, and I love the insignia. That's just some fun. weird, fun things that, you know, I think we we are we're proud of our family heritage. Uh, so it's nice to have this kind of like memorabilia almost. Absolutely. And that's the problem with using a medicine cabinet from yes. the 1800s. The drawers are sticky. Yeah. Um, what about the? Well, I don't want to jump ahead. No, but well, I'm curious about the. The magazines. Yeah, sure. Um, well, my first job, uh, honestly, first real job when I was about 18 years old was I was working for magazines all over New York City. I was writing for them. Um, I, I was the editor of a few, and then I transitioned onto the business development side. But I had a real love for print magazines, mm. uh, especially older magazines and kind of the time capsule they represented too. Um, Old interview magazines, I think, are just some of the greatest Absolutely. works ever. Yeah. Um, and you don't see magazine covers like that anymore, too. Right. Um, I've got this Brian Bosworth one, and it's it's certainly it's a celebrity profile photo, but the artistic quality, it, it's beautiful. It's a work of art all its own. Hmm. Um, I had to pull out an Abercrombie and Fitch quarterly magazine. Holy because for smokes. anyone who grew up, during the 90s, uh -huh. the time capsule that that represents is just above and beyond. That is a blast from the past. It's crazy when you say, you, the nostalgic quality, but also the ability to transport yourself suddenly by going through the pages, oh, it, yeah. it's eerie. It's eerie and it's amazing. Um, and then there are these magazines uh, from the 80s called Wet Magazine that was about bath culture. I kid you not, it, it was a, I'm sorry, a magazine bath culture. about baths. Like high-end luxury baths, uh, and the sure. whole the whole mentality behind it, it it was pretty much a punk magazine. It was this guy out of the West Coast who wanted to start a magazine, and he's like, everything else has been done, so I'll start a magazine called Wet Magazine about <laughs> bath culture. Um, so I have magazines probably ranging back from the 1950s through today, and that's transitioned into a love for books now too. A familiar book cover caught my eye. It was Holden Caulfield in his trademark red hunting cap, but here he is wearing it backwards and has a rather dandy scarf around his neck. What's the uh, Catcher in the Rye edition here? So the Catcher in the... This is an interesting one. I was surprised because I got this for a whisper. Um, 
at Mass Books. There were very few editions of The Catcher in the Rye that actually had an image of Holton Caulfield on the front cover. Okay. Um, J.D. Salinger was adamant that uh, no one should see or understand what Holden looked like. Oh, right. Uh, so there were so a this few... Is a, this is heresy, actually. Exactly. There are a few releases of magazines that actually did feature him with his red hunting cap on the cover, and this was one of them, and uh, I was lucky that I could just kind of snag it for a whisper. But it was just one of those weird little things I spotted uh, and immediately called out to me. I love this. Yeah. This unusual book may shock you. Will make you laugh and may break your heart, but you will never forget it. And then over here, though, I've got another edition from uh, American Book Club from the 1960s. Uh, that's another harder one to find of The Catcher in the Rye. Um, obviously, I love The Catcher in the Rye. There's no surprise there, I'd say. Um, but finding these little, like, there's that detail. Why, why should that be obvious? I mean,. I can imagine. I think everyone loves The Catcher in the Rye for the most part. Okay. (laughs) You're not Um, saying you identify with Holden. No, of course not. Uh, There's a special place in my heart, but the little details, too, just kind of uh, Mm -hmm. the illustrated qualities, how Mm -hmm. how the 16, that number, kind of swoops to the right, too. Yeah. That's not in the actual edition. Right. Just having these special qualities of them. And I also love the space, because everyone is familiar, obviously, with the usual printing of The Catcher in the Rye, and it's kind of like almost a little chapbook. Yeah. And it feels very condensed. Right. So to have it almost kind of luxuriate yeah. on this much yeah. white space and paper, it's almost as if the story's expanding too. Um, which well, it certainly really feels like a serious volume. Yeah. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. The only thing I've, well, you've got the federal bookcase. And this is probably the best example of actually living with a period mm-hmm. piece, too. Um, and then, of course, the, ca- the, the case frame above it, right. which is uh, 18th century, um, and the portraits as well. Um, again, I, contemporary living with period is really interesting yeah. to me. Yeah. Um, there's something about this case piece that just fits in, I, I think, really anywhere. I think it could live on its own. It could live in a period room and not feel out of place. It could live in a contemporary setting and not be out of place. Um, the carved lions on the side of it. I mean, it's it's a really beautiful piece of craftsmanship. Um, and then having... And bold. Yes, definitely bold. And so is the gigantic frame above Indeed, it. Indeed, which I will note is empty. Yes, I like the empty space. Okay. Which might be surprising considering how full (laughs) this space actually is and packed the walls are. Um, And then over here, this is probably one of my favorite pieces too, which is a Robert Mabel uh, Thorpe photograph Mm. um, I got from this great gallery on the West Coast called Moran Moran. um, And they represent the Mabel Thorpe estate. Um, And this is this one called the Rock Cats. That was, uh, you know, some gang members one gang member in particular, obviously, for this photo, that Maplethorpe photographed. Um, and I just love the swoop of his oh, hair. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. just, there's I mean, such an essence of cool about it. It is so cool. And uh, classic Maplethorpe. Absolutely. All right. Well, we've done a pretty good tour. What are the, what's the story with these chairs? <laughs> we are looking at a pair of almost cartoon-like chairs that look like someone's very colorful laundry stuffed into a plastic frame. So these are a designer uh, named Katie Stout. Um, who's represented by RN Company and Nina Johnson Gallery. Um, I, it's funny, she, she works, um, she graduated from RISD, 
um, alongside uh, another great designer named Misha Khan, who's represented by Friedman Benda. And I think Misha, I know actually, Misha had these chairs in his apartment um, for a bit. And there was an editorial cover of his apartment. And I remember reaching out to Misha and saying, Misha, I love your chairs. Like, I need, can I can I buy your chairs? He's like, I didn't design those. Those are Katie. All so right. I originally reached out, I immediately reached out to Katie and, and asked if, if they were available. So I bought Misha's chairs designed by Katie. Uh-huh. Um, but again, I, I just think they're so much fun. Um, and they're actually extremely comfortable. Are they really? Um, they're, they're, please, again, okay. once again. Yeah, I've got to give this a try. Yeah. Oh, you're right. It's like sitting in a stuffed animal. I mean, it's <laughs> it's wonderful. Yeah, but you wouldn't necessarily think to look at them. But yeah, I would take this over over a corner chair. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very cozy. The lazy boy of its time. That's right. <laughs> the lazy boy of our time. Yeah. This whole living with antiques thing seems like a little bit of fun, doesn't it? I hope you all enjoyed it. wraps up our tour of Noah Wunsch's World of Wonders. Thanks so much to Noah for talking with me and sharing your home. Keep in mind you can see pictures at themagazineantiques.com or on my Instagram at Objective Interest. And send me your thoughts and comments at podcast at themagazineantiques.com. Catch us again next month. Today's episode was edited and produced by Sammy Delati. Our music is by Trap Rabbit, and I'm Ben Miller. <laughs>